Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Best of the Best, the 2017 Third Coast Festival broadcast. Third Coast is an independent arts organization in Chicago dedicated to celebrating great radio stories. All year long, we scour the globe for the best work we can find, then we share it in a variety of ways, via radio and podcast, on the internet, at live listening events. We also host an international competition to honor all the wonderful storytelling our medium has to offer, and the talented producers who create it. This year, we received a record-breaking number of entries, more than 600 from 21 different countries. Then it was the difficult job of the judges to choose the winners. In the end, 11 documentaries won top honors. These are the stories we're happy to bring you in the next hour, recently crowned at our award celebration in Chicago, hosted by Helen Zaltzman of the podcast The Illusionist. Tonight, we're here to celebrate audio pieces that are the most exquisite and deep explorations of the human condition. On Best of the Best, we bring you the winning stories and hear from these producers as they accept awards for this remarkable work. All right, it's time to do some awarding. These little radios aren't going to give out themselves. We always like to begin with our Best New Artist Award. New because they've been working in the field for two years or less, best because there's something about their work that's exciting and filled with promise. This year, the judges couldn't choose just one, so we have two Best New Artists, including Laura Irving, who has a deep, dark secret. She tells her story in Quiet Revolution. I mean, you get to a point in life where there's things that you're just not supposed to be doing anymore. I keep them away in here, just in case anyone comes around and, you know, starts to ask any questions. It's like there's some sort of invisible threshold and there's a realisation that you even have to start thinking about these kind of things. Protection, always very important. But there's something about doing it under the cover of darkness which is liberating, you know? It's funny, because getting older, I feel increasingly conflicted between what I feel like doing on the inside 
and what that actually might look like from the outside. And those kind of thoughts can be quite intrusive. You should live in a better neighborhood. Why don't you own a house? You're too old to wear that now. Who are you kidding? So I go at night so that I can't be seen and judged. Because let's face it, a middle-aged woman learning to roller skate on a tennis court in the middle of the night on some roller skates that cost a pound from a charity shop is tragic, weird, ridiculous, sad, pitiful, shameful, weird, embarrassing. I feel like people would say, at my age, I should probably be thinking about having a child, not, not behaving, behaving like, like one. I was a kid in the 80s, it was all about roller discos. It'd be in the sports hall, there'd be a bloke with a mobile disco, there'd be lights flashing. I was definitely never one of those cool kids that had their own black boots and the neon wheels and the big tongue sticking out the front and leg warmers and stuff like that. I, I was a kid hanging by the side rails in the plastic higher boots that never fit me quite right and gave you massive blisters. I guess the aim really is uh, quite an elegant, graceful kind of state of flow. And to achieve a steady rhythm and pace to things. it kind of meditative you know uh, concentrating on the body just going around and round and round and round okay oh yeah here we go responsibility career stability it's like all those thoughts stay on the outside you know, just on the other side of that fence. And I imagine that when I look at myself, that, that I'm lean and I'm brown and I'm gliding effortlessly down a boulevard by a sparkling blue ocean, looking fabulous in hot pants. <laughs> Warm. Sunkissed. 20 years old. Okay. Here we go. Back up. Totally deluded. Yeah, I haven't given up yet. That was Quiet Revolution, produced by Laura Irving for Burst, a student radio station in the UK. This story won one of two Best New Artist Awards in 2017. Ever since the presidential campaign peaked in 2016, News stories have come flying at us at an unusually furious pace. 
Our next award goes to a news story from the campaign trail that brings together sound and story in a way that creates a rich, vivid slice of our political landscape. The 2017 Best News Feature Award went to Standing Out from the Crowd at a Trump Rally, reported by Ike Sriskandaraja. About 100 motorcyclists crowd the road leading to the hotel convention center where the Tea Party rally is happening. They're waiting to cheer on Donald Trump. He's expected to drive by any minute on his way to make a speech there. Trump, you know, uh, banners and everything, flags, the whole deal. Crazy blonde lady with a Trump sign, you know, yelling in every direction. Alan Flores is a member of the motorcycle club Knights Templar. They take their name from a secretive sect of holy warriors who fought in the Crusades. These days, they tell me they're still defending Christianity, but instead of shining armor, these knights have leather jackets, sleeve tattoos, and lots of Trump signs. For you, why, why Trump? Uh, the way everybody's so politically correct these days and, and apologizing to everybody, you know, apologizing just to apologize. Uh, people call him uh, brash or uh, arrogant, and, and an arrogant American is how we got to be what we are today, and we're losing that a little bit at a time. As we're talking, the police ask the bikers to move farther down the road because they're blocking traffic. And I want to go with them. Okay, now I'm... My ride just took off. Is there anybody here I can hitch with? Yeah, I mean, you can ride with me if you need to. So I hop on Alan's bike. It's a 2014 Victory Cross Country. All white, polished, curves. From the front, it kind of looks like a stormtrooper's helmet on wheels. Uh, what do I do? Just put your feet on the pegs and don't fly off. Okay. Alan put out the call on Facebook to get his motorcycle buddies to show up today. He's inviting, easy to talk to, and doesn't mind pulling into a Trump rally with a public radio recorder on the back of his bike. And have you been involved in, uh, like, other political events like this? Not one. This is it. You know, in the last two weeks, this is everything that we've ever done politically. Alan's a big guy. Over six feet tall, broad, former military, he's wearing wraparound sunglasses and has a wiry bristle of a beard that hangs off his chin. I feel guilty that I've trained myself to avoid guys that look like Alan, like avoiding bright colors in nature. Part of the reason is something that happened to me a few weeks ago. I was eating at a roadside place and there was a group of bikers there. And when I left to get on my bicycle, one of them followed me outside. He said, hey, Isis and told me if he was riding next to me, he'd kick me off the road. Then he said he was just messing with me and made me shake his hand. A classic bully move. So I'm reluctant to ask this group my next question about Trump. And what about some of the, like, more controversial things that, like, he's banned Muslims, a temporary ban on Muslims. I I, I agree with that 100%, banning Muslims. Anthony Leggio is a New York-born biker who now owns a small business in South Carolina. He's not banning everybody. He's just stopping it until he gets a grip of what's going on. I'm not saying all Muslims are bad. There's a lot of Muslims that are wonderful people. We just have to figure out who's who. Another biker named A.T. from Myrtle Beach agrees. There's always going to be people that hate us. I understand that. But listen, 
We're not over there trying to chop people's heads off. And we don't want that going on here either. So for that, we need a strong man who's going to take care of all that. I talked to another strong man who looks and sounds like a professional wrestler. How you doing, my man? And got the question I'd been asked a lot on this trip. Where are you from, sir? It's kind of hard to hear over all the engine noise. So he asked me where I'm from, and I start where I live now, in Oakland, California. Then go back to where I was born, Wisconsin. But I know where this question's going. What's your, uh, what is your, uh, My family is Sri Lankan, which is a small island nation in the Indian Ocean. So he latches on to India. He says, we're cool with India, which is a nation of mostly Hindus, as long as it's not Pakistan. I know India don't like Pakistan. We're cool with the Hindus. Here's Donald right now. Donald Trump is pulling in. They don't want to spend the 79 bucks to get inside the Tea Party convention. So they hope to catch Trump on his way out. In the meantime, they peel off to go to Damon's, a nearby bar. I part ways with the bikers and head into the convention hall just as Trump is taking the stage. This was a couple days before Sarah Palin threw her Tea Party support behind Trump. And some people in the crowd don't like it when he takes aim at the other GOP frontrunner, Ted Cruz. But they're on board when he repeats the same concerns I heard from the bikers. I turn on the television today. What do I see? Islamic, right? Right? Radical, Islamic, terrorism. That's what I see. We can't just do this. we got to make sure the Syrian immigration. We don't know where these people come from. He raises the same question I'd heard earlier. Where do you come from? So we have to be smart, we have to be tough, we have to be vigilant, and we can do it, and we can make America greater than ever before. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Trump's supporters stream out of the conference room and into the hall, and they carry his message with them. Kind of like when you leave a concert and your favorite song of the night gets stuck in your head. He's the only one that put it all away. Nobody else there to say no more Muslims until, just until things get taken care of. And you know that he didn't mean it for the bad. You know he didn't mean it to offend anyone. He just wants to say this is the way we need to do it. That's when I hear an unlikely voice. A black woman in her 30s wearing a Guns N' Roses t-shirt speaking to two older white ladies. She's criticizing Black Lives Matter for attacking the GOP. 
anger and every all that negative is coming from black lives. But there are problems. There is still racism. But since we're ignoring the problems, it's getting bigger and it's going to tear us apart. So let's talk about it. That's Anita Moncrief. She's an ex-liberal, and the us she's talking about is the conservative movement. She tells me she isn't a Trump supporter, but she'll vote for him if he gets the nomination. A group called the Black Conservatives Fund pays for her to go to right-wing events like this one. She's often the only black person in the room and has conversations about race with people who hate political correctness. You're never going to be uh, able to have real relationships until you can have real conversations. So that means talking about things. So I create safe spaces and I let people ask me stuff. I've had people want to touch my hair. I have had people ask me questions about black blacks and how they feel about things. But it's okay because there's no judgment there because there's a level of curiosity and a fear of being labeled something they aren't. It's lonely work, but Anita can picture a more inclusive and more diverse Republican Party. I mean, I don't care if you're wearing a do-rag or a business suit. There's a place for you in the Republican Party, but it's not only getting blacks and other people of color to realize it, but it's getting the party to accept that we're not going to change. Do you think you're going to stay on this side for the foreseeable future? I think that I will always be a conservative, but I have been leaning towards libertarianism. Yeah. I mean, they've got so many great ideas, and Rand Paul's hair, I just want to touch it. <laughs> so I guess some people would tell me I was being culturally insensitive. <laughs> it's like if I get close enough and I go, can I touch your hair? I just imagine him saying yes. <laughs> Standing out from the crowd at a Trump rally was reported by Ike Sriskandaraja for Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2017 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Today, we're listening to the winners of our annual documentary competition, made possible with generous support from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation. Hear all of this year's winners, along with a trove of other great stories from around the world anytime, at thirdcoastfestival.org and on our podcast, ReSound. Coming up next, a tragic accident and one family's impossible choice. And what happens when your childhood friend gets famous, really famous, because of you? Or so you think. Stay with us. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're listening to the winners of our annual documentary competition. This year's Third Coast Bronze Award winner is a beautiful but wrenching story of a family revisiting the darkest time in their lives, a crisis born out of struggles with mental illness that left no family member unscathed, including the reporter, John Facile. This is an excerpt from Blink Once for Yes. Here's John. Uh, why did you and mom decide to start a family? Well, <laughs> I loved your mom. And we got married so we could start having children without anybody yelling at us. We weren't big plan aheaders. <laughs> <laughs> 
we had a great time with you. Things got better when Michael came along. And then things got better again when Patrick came along. It just seemed like the perfect thing to add a fourth. And then finally your mom convinced me a fifth. And Emily and Andy. Emily and Andy. I'd like you to describe our family. Should I start with the pugs? No. <laughs> We're all strangely humored, quirky people. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Mom's the quiet little Irish woman. Don't lose your gift cards, guys. Later, put them in a safe place so they. Dad's a loudmouth Italian and. <laughs> I was guessing. I didn't know what it was. All right, youngest, oldest. I'm the youngest, and I'm I'm weird. I don't know. Oh, this is very cute. Came out last year. Changed my name to Andy. That's why everyone's referring to me as Andy and using they them pronouns. Cause those are my pronouns now. Oh, thank you, Andy. Yeah. I don't know. I'm queer. That's the best way to put it. <laughs> no, I got one. Um. Then there's Emily. No, I got a pug scarf. That's fantastic. Em's in Pittsburgh, and she's too smart for her own good. And now I have pug underwear, pug socks, several pug shirts and sweaters. Then there's Patrick, who lives at home, and I can hear him snoring through my walls. You get a car. You oh. get a car. <laughs> you get a car. You already have a car. You're the brother who went off and did the arts and things. And now you live in Chicago, and I have no idea what your world is like. My turn. Hold on. I want to take a moment. Okay. So, um, Michael would be next. I'd just like to take a minute and hold hands and have a quiet moment and send whatever thoughts you want to your brother, okay? All right. <laughs> You're pulling me. Stop. Please. We love you, Michael. We love you, Michael. I'm gonna follow that. Right. <laughs> Stay with me! Yes, I Michael! Knew it, Mike. I knew it! I Mike was the golden child. He was the captain of the high school football team, a good student, uh, not terribly rebellious. Well, yeah, he just had a really buoyant spirit, and he would always, like, map out what we were going to do that day. He would help me out with everything. Before he left for college, Mike was kind of like the brother I always looked up to. Sorry, John. Appreciated. <laughs> Noted. He was kind of the, the rock of the three brothers. John was the one I could go to for a movie. Mike was the cry and Pat was the laugh. Was Mike your favorite? Be honest. No. I mean, it, you can't answer a question like that with kids because... Everyone at different times is maybe your favorite. He was a little goofy, but he was also really mature. And to be honest, John, he was a lot like me. He would just text me, I love you, Mom. 
I miss that. I know when we got the call. 12.58 a.m. I heard the house phone ring and then his cell phone in the bedroom rang, you know, and he, he got it. And then I, I heard you say he's my son. And then you, you fell to your knees. And I just, just froze. Well, it was one o'clock in the morning and mom woke me up. She was crying. She said, Mike's been hurt in an accident. And I was like, okay, so we don't have to go to school tomorrow. And she was like, no. And she said, Michael fell. Um, so I imagined that, like, twilight scene where she falls downstairs and crashes through a mirror, that kind of thing. And I was like, oh, okay, he fell. Like, he broke his leg. No big deal. There was very little light in the bathroom. I remember my skin was gray. It was just so surreal. And, and I, I remember... Remember I threw up, and my throw up was orange. Yeah, I did. I threw up in the sink. I just threw up everything that was in my stomach. And I think I said, do you know what happened? She said, not really yet, just that we have to go. We drove immediately from our house in suburban Philadelphia to the hospital in Altoona. How long is that drive to Altoona? I have no idea. Five hours? At least. Yeah, it was sleeting, it was snowing, it was raining, it was really bad. We were on the Pennsylvania Turnpike and I got a call from Dr. Simon Lampard. And he told me that Mike had arrived, that he was being treated and evaluated. And I asked the question, will he be alive when we get there? And he said yes. He expected that Michael would still be alive when we got there. There was no long-term discussion. It was just getting him through the next couple of hours. And that was pretty much how the first few days were. They were battling a fever that wouldn't be controlled 106, 107 degrees. They had chill blankets on him um, where they run ice water through them to keep his core colder. He broke two ribs, one on each side, and he broke his left hip, and he had some swelling around his ankles. And a chip neck, too, or right. something. Right, chip in his spine. Considering that he fell 50 feet and landed on concrete, it was remarkable how little physical damage was apparent. But it was pretty clear that his brain injury was very severe. I remember standing in the hallway outside his room and the doctor started to assemble and this one doctor wouldn't look me in, like I looked up to smile at him, he wouldn't look me in the eyes. And we go into this tiny room with like, what, 10 doctors? Nurses, doctors, the whole trauma team. And... Plus some medical students. I don't know what the specialty was of the head doctor, but he he told us that, yeah, he said, you know, the good news is his neck will heal. The bad news is you should probably let him go. And I remember falling to the floor 
and then, then someone asking us if we wanted water. And it, it was just, we weren't expecting that. That was an excerpt of Blink Once for Yes, winner of the Third Coast Bronze Award, produced by John Fasile, Stephen Jackson, and Lizzie Schiffman-Tufano for the podcast Love and Radio. The judges said that, quote, this story takes the kind of unexpected twists that continue to raise the stakes and leave listeners gutted. It's a hard piece to listen to, but an even harder one to construct. We encourage you to listen to the full piece at thirdcoastfestival.org. I feel like we've jumped from the um, sublime to the ridiculous. A few years ago, with the nudging of Ira Glass, we decided to create an award to recognize great audio stories that are out for fun. The escapist, goofy, strange, I made it because I really, really wanted to work. We call it the Skylarking Award, and this year it goes to Jonathan Goldstein. In his podcast, Heavyweight, he tries to help out old friends by revisiting troubled moments from their past and fixing an old pesky problem. In this episode, Jonathan meets up with his friend Gregor to solve a decades-old problem. This guy's going to ram you from behind because you're going 11 miles an hour. Should I make a left? Although... You usually don't do it from the right lane, but okay, let's not get killed. Do you have a driver's license? (laughs) This is Gregor and me on our way to lunch, and what you're hearing is typical. When I'm driving, Gregor comments on my speed. When I eat, he comments on my table manners. And when I eat yogurt, he comments on the way I lick the inside lid, calling it both lecherous and unmanly. Some might say that Gregor is overly critical, possibly even prickly, but I would not. I love Gregor for many reasons. His loyalty, his generosity, his being the kind of person who will pick you up at the airport at four in the morning without even complaining. But it's perhaps his courage to say the things that we're all not exactly thinking, but maybe thinking about thinking, that is most thrilling. And so, when he showed up at my office mocking himself instead of me and speaking in biblical parables, I was concerned. Was it the Pharaoh in the Joseph story who said the seven lean years and seven fat years? Yeah. I had this insight today that the fat years are about to end. Would these have been the fat years? That's what I realized. Literally this morning I woke up and I was like, wait, those were the fat years. You know, in every conceivable way, financially, stability, prestige, all the job stuff and like creative accomplishment stuff. I just feel like it's like going up in smoke and I'm watching it go up in smoke. Gregor is 48 years old. And by profession, he makes marketing videos for a cleaning product, usually found in the bathroom. I can't tell you the name of this product for fear Gregor will lose his job. In other words, he's not the film auteur he dreamt of being back in his college days, underlining back issues of cahier de cinéma. On top of that, he says that over the past few years, he's seen his career slowly suck downward. Not unlike, oh, I don't know, the spiraling waters of a sink unclogged by a chemical drain opener designed to flush pipes and attack clogs at their worst. What's that children's game where everyone goes around the chairs? Musical chairs. Musical chairs. And everyone sits down? hmm And you're like, oh, that friend of mine became a CEO. These four friends are like EVP, SVP, senior whatever at their things. 
That friend of mine wound up sitting in the president of Estonia's chair. And then you're like, the music stops, and you're left standing. I've heard him reel off this list before, and Gregor fully admits it. The success of anyone he knows, no matter how thin his connection to them, feels like a reflection of his own shortcomings. My circumstance, I was always like, oh, things will, you know, about to break through, about to change. And now, like, you could say, well, this is just a setback. It's, you know, whatever. Soon your ship's going to come in. But it's just not, you know. I mean, that's just the simple truth, the uncomfortable truth. Of all Gregor's stories about the success of his acquaintances and friends, there's one story that he returns to most. And not only is it the greatest success story of them all, it's the one that touched his life the most intimately. The story all begins about 20 years ago in Manhattan, when Gregor was living in a small apartment in Chinatown with his older brother, Dimitri. One night, they had a friend of theirs over for dinner, a techno-musician friend. He was really poor at the time. He was living in like, I think in like a, a basement in a warehouse or something for $40 a month. And he was an articulate smart guy, still an articulate smart guy, but he was sort of an unlikely rock star in that his hair had mostly fallen out even when we were still in our 20s. But I watched his ascent and he played to bigger and bigger crowds doing this techno kind of stuff. And then eventually he got a record contract and um, I at the time got a hold of a very obscure set of CDs which were field hollers. I thought it was really interesting stuff. I loaned him this box set of CDs. He then sampled it very heavily and created a record which got him very rich and very famous. This guy you're speaking of. This guy's Moby. Moby, bald-headed, bespectacled, castle-dwelling, multi-million record-selling Moby. But back then, he was just Gregor's pal, who spent weekends at Gregor's family's place and attended family birthday parties, too. In bars and during long car rides, Gregor and Moby had long, earnest conversations about God and the things they believed. They were living their 20s together. And those CDs Gregor lent Moby? The box set, Sounds of the South, was recorded by the ethnomusicologist Alan Lomax. Beginning in the 1930s, Lomax and his father John made thousands of field recordings, mostly in the American South. These recordings are among the most important in American music, preserving dozens of African-American songs from the early years of the 20th century. Another hit on Moby's album is called Honey. It makes use of the song Sometimes, sung by Bessie Smith Jones. Jones was taught these songs by her grandfather, a former slave born in Africa. This is Moby's version. I've here elected to play for you the live version of the song, with all of its foot stomping and audience cheering. It's how I imagine Gregor hears it, echoing in his head during those sleepless nights when his kishkas are slowly being corroded by battery acid. When I discovered this CD set, 
I was like an evangelist. I was like, this is amazing. You got to check this out. He was over the house. And I was like, you got to take this home. This is amazing stuff. This is the best CD I've heard in I don't know how long. I've been listening to it nonstop rotation. I love the CD. So it wasn't just laying in a pile and he happened to put it in his bag and walk out the door. I said I sold him on it. Moby makes use of several Lomax recordings on his album, Play, which went multi-platinum. Play eventually became one of the most commercially licensed albums ever recorded at the time. And then was there an intermediary step before that and then hearing it on the CD where he said, hey, by the way, thanks? No. I said, this is an amazing thing. Next thing I heard, it's on the radio. And I said, hey, can I get that box set back? And then years of not being friends. (laughs) And according to Gregor, that was all he wanted to get his CDs back. He was looking for neither riches nor credit, just the CDs, which he claims were only a loan. And so this is how it went. He began leaving Moby voice messages, by Gregor's count about a dozen, that all went unanswered. Then, in a final act of desperation, Gregor penned a song called Moby Give Me Back My CDs, which he sang into Moby's answering machine with accompanying karaoke music to the tune of Brian Adams' Heaven. After much cajoling, Gregor dug up his lyrics, which I will now perform for you. Moby give me back my CDs, the recordings from the field, the Alan Lomax box set CDs. I think there were seven. Those discs are all that I need, the ones I gave you from my house. I think you'll be sure to see there were seven. And that message, Gregor says, was met with over a decade of silence. That was an excerpt from Gregor, produced by Jonathan Goldstein with co-producers Wendy Dore, Kalila Holt, and Chris Neary for the podcast Heavyweight from Gimlet Media. It won the 2017 Skylarking Award. The judges said... With a political climate dragging so many souls down, Jonathan Goldstein's incisive writing, buoyant wit, and production prowess relieved our judges from their own worldly troubles through this gloriously produced 48-minute caper. Here's Jonathan at the 2017 Third Coast Award Ceremony in Chicago. Um, I wrote this a week ago. I hope it holds up. Um... I'm not much of a laugher. I believe this has held me back as a broadcaster. I've always wished I had one of those free and easy laughs that make interview subjects feel like I've just placed an arm around their shoulder. A laugh that says, yes, yes, keep going. Instead, I produce silences. (laughs) Silences that rather than encourage, make a storyteller feel like I just put down the phone to put some change in the meter. But Gregor makes me laugh maybe more than anyone, and so he makes me a better broadcaster than I really am. If you're lucky, you'll find yourself surrounded by funnier, smarter people than you who make you better than you are. I've been lucky to have and to have had people in front of the mic and behind the mic who make me sound way better than I have any right to. So thanks to them, uh, thanks to the Third Coast, and thanks most of all to my friend Gregor, Jonathan Goldstein, winner of the 2017 Third Coast Skylarking Award. 
Coming up after the break, the Silver Award winner. Stay with us. The problem about being a beginner is that it's going to suck. But the good thing about being a beginner is that you've got all this energy. On the Third Coast Pocket Conference, you'll learn the essential tools for making audio stories from the world's most celebrated radio producers and podcasters. So when I make a piece, I want the world I'm imagining to be so engaging that the listener wants to move there. I want to create an atmosphere that will be sustained from beginning until end. You have to find a way to get in and tell a story that's going to surprise people about something that they already know. The closer, the more intimate, the more immersed you can get in the lives of the people whose stories you're telling, the more powerful those narratives will be. The Third Coast Pocket Conference is where your next great story begins. Listen online at thirdcoastfestival.org or you can subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. And that is the only way that you will get from sucking to not sucking. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're listening to the winners of our annual documentary competition. Radio is a powerful medium. When harnessed, it can also move people to action and inspire change. And this is what Third Coast honors with our Radio Impact Award. This year, the award goes to Noel Anaya for his clear-sighted, impassioned story, Emancipation, A Young Man Leaves Foster Care on His Own Terms. We're ready. You're ready? We're okay. ready. It's, it's rock and roll. Walking into court for my very last time as a foster youth, I feel like I'm getting a divorce from a system that I've been in a relationship with almost my entire life. It's bittersweet because I'm losing guaranteed money for food and housing, as well as access to my social workers and lawyer. But on the other hand, I'm relieved to finally get away from a system that ultimately failed me on its biggest promise, that one day it would find me a family who would love me. Good afternoon. Let's go on the record. This is line six, the matter of Noel Anaya. Noel. Noel Anaya. Thank you. You guys have been saying it wrong for 21 years. You know what? <laughs> Everybody pronounces it differently. Forgive so um, thank you, though. I'm, I'm glad to know it's Noel. Little it's things, eight, like when my judge, Shauna Schwartz, mispronounces my name, serve as a constant reminder that, hey, I'm just a number. I often come away feeling powerless and anonymous in the foster care system. Well, I'm reviewing my notes, and it looks like um, the first time I got involved in your case was back in 2003. You've been in the system a long time. I don't have any pictures of my five siblings and me together as babies. Not a single one, which makes Throwback Thursdays a little challenging. My biological parents weren't ready to be parents. My father was abusive. Eventually, Child Protective Services got involved, and my siblings and I went into the foster care system. We were separated and shuffled between foster homes, group homes, and shelters, and for at least one of my siblings, incarceration. That's why it was really important to me to make a statement in court, going on the record about how the foster care system failed my siblings and me. I have to say, you have been pretty much one of our more successful young adults. Is there any advice you'd give us? whom it may concern. This is the year that I divorce you. 
Your gray hands can no longer hurt me. Your gray hands can no longer overpower me. Your gray hands can never tell me that you love me because it's too late. I use gray hands to describe the foster care system because it never felt warm or human. It's institutional, opposite the sort of unconditional love I imagine that parents try to show their kids. Your gray hands just taught me how to survive in a world. We never learned how to love ourselves unconditionally. I've been with multiple foster families. I've been with multiple shelters. How does a person like me not end up with a family? In an ideal world, being a foster kid is supposed to be temporary. When it's stable and appropriate, the preference is to reunite kids with their parents or family members. Adoption is the next best option. I used to dream of it, having a mom, a dad, siblings to play with, a dog. But when I hit 12, I realized that I was getting old, that adoption would probably never happen for me. In the system, I constantly had new social workers, lawyers, and case managers, which left me vulnerable. It wasn't until I got older that I realized one of the main causes for the turnover was because of low wages and overflowing caseloads. My own lawyer says he's currently juggling 130 other clients. At 21, you happily kick us off to the curb and say, good luck, I wish you well, I wish you the best, but you can't come back because we can't take you in. I've seen too many of my people give up on the educational system. And I had hoped to finish college so by the time I aged out of foster care, but I'm still in my junior year. I'm committed to getting my bachelor's, despite the odds being terrible. I hope that you hear my words, and I hope that you listen to my signal of distress. I thank you for giving me closure. Thank you. All right, well, uh, thank you very much for being willing to share your, your feelings and your beliefs with us. So, um, you know, I know you have some, uh, sounds like some mixed feelings about the foster care system, but... Noel, I have no doubt that you are going to be successful in whatever you choose to do. Well, let me uh, say the magic words. I will adopt the findings and the orders on the JV. As the judge reads her final orders closing out my case, I promise myself that I'll leave all the rage I feel about the foster care system inside the courtroom, that I won't carry that hate and frustration with me for the rest of my life. The dependency case will be dismissed. There will be no further reviews. All right, thanks. Let's go off the record. There's one more thing I need before I leave the courtroom. For the judge to bring the gavel down on this chapter of my life. Is that it? No, no, no hammer? Or no, no. Okay. Want me to do one, the gavel? One time for All right. the gavel, please. Hold on. All right. You know, we never do that in real life. I felt goosebumps when the gavel slapped down on my judge's desk. Happy because I'm no longer cared for by a system that was never that good at actually caring for me. And I'm anxious, too, about what my life might be like next. Take care. You, too. I'm glad I was able to come. All right, you, too. Emancipation. A young man leaves foster care on his own terms was produced by Noel Anaya with Brett Myers and Denise Tejada for Youth Radio and NPR's All Things Considered. The impact of Noel's story was manyfold. There was not only an outpouring of support for Noel, but numerous youth advocacy organizations have reached out to him to ask his advice about future policy goals. 
Researchers at Stanford launched an investigation into how to reduce the number of foster care placements and improve adoption success rates, and an online game called A Journey Through Foster Care was developed that puts the user into the role of the foster child to better understand how the system works. Never underestimate the power of story. And now it's time for the 2017 Third Coast Silver Award winner. The judges heard this story to be an insightful and artfully constructed audio narrative that is a bridge to a deeper understanding of Saudi culture. In Saudi Arabia, one of the world's most restrictive countries for women, a 19-year-old has come to a crossroads. Mejd Abdul Ghani loves practicing karate and hanging out with her friends, and is also determined to become a scientist, like both her parents. At the same time, she's under pressure to get married, which might restrict her goals. Mejd recorded a radio diary for two years during this pivotal time in her life, when she was trying to figure out how to balance tradition and ambition. Here's an excerpt from her story. Hello, listener. <clears throat> this is Mejd. I live in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and I turned 19 today. Oh, okay. That's my alarm. It thinks I'm asleep. It's 6.45. I'm just here in my room, and I'm about to do my morning stretches. I like to count in Japanese when I do them. Ich, ni, san, go, rock, sech, hatch. Okay, I'm done. I'm going to introduce my family to the mic, and... You to the family. There's my immediately older brother's room to the left. Hi, Mohanad. Can I interview you? Can you talk about your work? Uh, work is great. Go. Hi. I have four brothers. I'm the only girl. And now I'm passing the family sitting room. We have two big bookcases because my parents have all kinds of books. We're a family that loves reading. So now I'm in the kitchen with my brother, my younger brother. Ma'ad, what are you eating? Is this conflict? Nodding. They don't hear nodding. You have to say yes. In Arabic, it's cornaflix. Cornaflix. My mom is here. <laughs> Something funny just happened, and my mom just told me about it. She got a call from some guy's mother and she said that, you know, we heard you have a beautiful daughter and we, we want to get our son married to her. My mom, she says her first instinct was to tell her, no, my daughter is too young and just try to end the call as soon as possible. But she said, I stopped myself because I felt like I need to acknowledge that you're growing up. And she told the mother that she can come over on Monday or Tuesday. So... I told her, you know, listen, my mom, the chance that I will agree to this person is 0.0000001%. I'm going to be late. I have my purse, I have my phone, I have my book. Okay, I'm putting on my abaya. It's all black. I put on before I leave the house. And I'm wearing my niqab. It's this fabric that covers my face except my eye area. 
So I'm hoping it's not masking my voice or anything. It sounds counterintuitive, but for me at least, it's kind of liberating. It gives me such anonymity. Nobody knows who the hell I am. So bye for now. Okay, I'm recording in the college at King Saud University. I'm a bachelor student of clinical lab sciences. The campus is really new. Basically, a lot of grass and a lot of palm trees. The male campus has been there since forever, and now they moved the female campus next to it. There's not a single man on campus. And if they are, they're in, like, in basements, and they have a special entrance, so you never run into them. That's why I can laugh as loudly as I want, and I can not wear a abaya, and I can look as pretty as I want. In the university, it's just me being me. Hey, I'm here with my friends. <laughs> They're distrustful somewhat of the microphone. It's professional, dude. Hi, bye. Bye. You know, it's the norm for girls to study now. It's not strange. It's not a big deal. What I want to do in life is I want to be a scientist. I want to get a master's, and then I want to get a PhD, and then I want to do a postdoc. This is my life plan. Hey, orange juice, please. Fresh water. Hi, it's me again. The date is December 2nd, and we're at a steakhouse. Outback. It's a steakhouse called Outback. No, no, it's an uh, Australian chain. It's called Outback Steakhouse. <laughs> okay, I'm with Majid, my oldest brother. Uh, you just ordered um, grilled salmon, and Majid, what did you order? Chicken fried chicken, which is a bit redundant. Um, we're sitting in the family section of the restaurant. It's part of the separating the sexes a little bit. So do you mind if I do an interview with you? Uh, okay. Oh, so how do you see your role as my brother? Like, what do you think your responsibilities are toward me? The responsibilities are many, but to sum up, if your father, my father, may God forbid, dies, then I will be the one who's in charge, what they call it in Arabic, the wali, the... Guardian, the guardian. Yeah. Just um, intervention for me. Male guardianship is like a thing in Saudi Arabia. So, for example, as a Saudi woman, you have to get permission to go to university or get married. It's one of the things we have to deal with. Anyway, back to the interview. So... Yeah, what do you want me to do in the future? You? Yes, me. To be a great mom and to have a great uh, husband. Yep, yep. So when do you think I should get married? You should get married now. Now? <laughs> you are capable of getting married, so you should get married now, yeah. I will, inshallah, I will be capable in three or four years as no, well. No, no, you are now capable. Yes, and I was capable last year too. Yes, so you miss, you are missing a lot of great opportunities. Actually, I think I will miss great opportunities if I do get married. 
I feel like if I get married, I have to be responsible towards my husband. And so that would stop me from doing the things I want to do. That was an excerpt from Mejd's Diary, Two Years in the Life of a Saudi Girl, produced by Sarah Kate Kramer and Joe Richman with assistant producer Nellie Giles for Radio Diaries and was first heard on NPR's All Things Considered. Mejd is currently studying for her master's degree in genetics at Iowa State University. Being so close by, she was able to join us for the award ceremony in Chicago to collect the Best Documentary Silver Award in person. I don't know what to say. Um, yeah, uh, being being from Saudi, it's uh, a lot of, being a Saudi woman especially, uh, a lot of people feel like they want to talk for me. But I, I also have a voice. And I have things to say. And, and, and my voice... Um, my voice is just one of many. My, my story reflects me and not all of the girls or all of the women in Saudi Arabia. Um, and there are a lot of bad things there, but there are... They're getting better. We're taking baby steps there. You might have heard women are recently were allowed to drive. Um, so we, we're, we're trying. Uh, but yeah, like I said, I, I, I needed to get my voice there and speak for myself. And the Radio Diaries crew gave me a chance to be heard and, and helped me find that voice. Thank you. Mejd Abdul Ghani. You can hear her entire radio diary at thirdcoastfestival.org. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2017 Third Coast Festival broadcast, sharing the best docs of the year. The program was produced by Dennis Funk with assistance from Isabel Vasquez and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. The executive director of the Third Coast Festival is Johanna Zorn. The artistic associate is Maya Goldberg-Safer. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago.